Hello, and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke to the travel writer Guy Stagg. We recorded this one a little while ago, so there's no mention of coronavirus and other things like that. Um, I spoke with Guy about what it is to be a travel writer in the age of TripAdvisor, his book The Crossway, and the experience of the book Chronicles, which is walking uh, to Jerusalem and across Europe during the winter. It's a great episode. We hope you enjoy it. So, Guy, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for finding time. I wanted to start by asking, you know, what is it to be a travel writer in the age of TripAdvisor, in the age of the internet in, in 2019? Where do you see the, the profession and the trade in the current world? In the 1980s, there was a big boom in travel writing. And one of the important books for that was Bruce Chapman's In Patagonia. And some of the reviews of that book said that he had discovered somewhere new, somewhere that hadn't been visited, and was able to write about it, almost like a Victorian writing about Africa. As in he had, as in he had actually discovered a place, a locus that was new, because Patagonia was Exactly. At that point, you'd say to Pat- Patagonia, and they'd say, is that a country? Is that an island? Where is that? Yeah. And now, of course, if you go to the places that he visited, there are... There were little sort of touts selling souvenirs. You can probably buy copies of the book. And I think that's because, as you've suggested in your question, there's been a real boom in in cheap travel, which allows people to go to almost anywhere on the globe. And so I think it's, it's very unlikely that a travel writer can now visit places that most people cannot access very easily. And indeed, some of the most adventurous travellers are going to be people doing blogs on the internet you know mm. it's potentially not likely that if you're you're a sort of literary scholarly type you're going to be able to necessarily visit the most out of the way places and so then you've got to ask yourself how can you come up with a journey that will allow you to access places that the people who can travel very conveniently and quickly are not going to be able to access mm-hmm. and at that point it's not really about covering distance or about finding a a little-known place on the map. It's potentially about visiting places that are, in fact, familiar to people, but visiting them in new ways. Or if you're you're going to go to a place that's less well-known, you're showing how its experience communicates more internationally, you know, has, has more international consequences. Do you think that boom that you refer to in the 80s, is that a periodic phenomenon? I mean, is there, you know, there's the 80s Chatwin boom, there's the sort of uh, 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 Robert Byron boom, you know, there's the, the Paddy Lee Fermor boom. Is, is the travel writing boom a periodic literary phenomenon? I don't know what the answer to that is, but I feel that it's probably the case that the status that nature writing has at the moment in the publishing landscape is similar to that that travel had 30 years ago and so then what you ask yourself is when these sort of non-fiction booms come around what it is what is it in the in the soul what is it in the the appetites of readers or the imaginations of readers that these booms are answering or accessing can we throw it back a bit as well i remember when, when we were in italy we talked about the kind of you know the origin story of the travel writer and travel writing i mean where would you draw the beginning of it with with sort of tub thumping Victorians? Do you think the lineage goes further back than that? Well, 
there are travel writers who would make the argument that it, it's the oldest stories that we tell are in fact the the stories of traveling if you grow up in a in a, a village or community then the these stories come from the members of those communities who go out who see the world and then come back to to talk about it but i think what what i recognize as travel writing is is as i suggested this victorian tradition and it makes sense in the mid 19th century if you are exploring the world and if you have a readership at home who is curious about the world that the empire is essentially opening up that you will have a large appetite for people to to go and and visit these places and then the other thing to bear in mind is that if you're in the middle of the industrial revolution if the green and pleasant land is in fact being turned into the sort of workshop of the, the world satanic then there's going to be this romanticism which is being uh, which is being tapped into by by the by these travelers and i think that sort of imperial legacy means that right up to this day it still had there were certain tropes of travel writing which which i think leave a nasty taste in the mouth so the, the most obvious one is the sense that the traveler is this sort of heroic all-knowing figure massive moustache command of all languages and a knows of, a lot of knots and stuff like that yeah exactly <laughs> able to identify winds uh, and of course you know he's emotionally bulletproof so he's utterly unaffected by the things that he right. inevitably he sees and uh, and and consequently this means when they interact with the people that they meet the the people that you meet are typically you know a bit, a bit strange weird. or a bit yeah. stupid and quite foreign and, and yeah and this is funny this is entertaining you, yeah. you you point up their foibles and peculiarities and, and you make the reader laugh and this is actually quite an easy trap to fall into when you're when you're writing travel mm. because the experience of traveling is often slightly bewildering and so you then have a detached core through which you observe what's going on around you and the stuff that you notice is often the stuff that's slightly strange or slightly yeah. funny and then you you go home or you go back to the library and you collect all your books that you, and you read the histories of the places you're you're traveling through and then you dump all the knowledge that you've acquired as if you are in fact this enormously learned victorian scholar yeah and so the question is how do you write travel if you want to write travel that in some way connects to this tradition but without falling into these somewhat unappealing habits or tropes and do you think those victorians were travelers who wrote or writers who traveled um i think they were almost entirely travelers who wrote yeah so if you think of Curzon or if you think of Burton their their journeys were carried out for these for the uninitiated could you give little brief sketches of Curzon Burton is is sort of weird you know sexual peccadilloes and studies in brothels and stuff like that right yes and also spoke 25 languages (laughs) which is dizzy uh and then I'm always very skeptical of those claims I always think it's like he knew enough to order a cappuccino. In there. <laughs> um, yes, that's possibly the case. Although he did also, he definitely knew enough um, to, you know, pass as a native, as the <laughs> phrase goes. Um, so Curzon was uh, had. It's another phrase that is not very twenty nineteen. So. <laughs> uh, Viscount Curzon had this uh, career at Oxford where he was the, the most brilliant undergraduate and everyone imagined that he was going to 
to go on to be uh, be the prime minister. And so in order to set himself up for this, this career that he imagined was setting for, ahead of him, he went out and he spent his 20s travelling around Central Asia. Uh, and then he wrote a series of, of quite long books um, about his travels, which are, are almost unreadable. So <laughs> they're very, very, very long and, um, and very, very difficult to get through. I, I tried to Did read they sell his... at the time? That's a good question. I, I tried to read one of his essays on, on borders. Okay. Uh, when I say essays, I'm talking about a sort of 600-page book. And uh, it was impossibly dense. Uh, and then the, there was a second cousin who was, who was, I think, a, an uncle or something, who wrote a, a book about monasteries, uh, travelling around the monasteries of the Levant, yeah. which I, I did read to research my own book. And, and that is, is more literary, but it's still... The, the intentions are not the same as a novelist, for example. Yeah. The intention is primarily to inform, and then if you can delight with your phrasing, that's, that's a happy accident. And didn't Burton translate the Kama Sutra? I think he did, yes. Yeah. yes. I'm sure other translations are available. Um, okay, so from, from Mustachioed Victorians to your own interest in this kind of writing and your journey to your journey, as it were, how does this come about? I think that my father gave me a copy of Patrick Lee Fermel's books when I was in my early teens, 14 or 15, uh, his most famous book is is two and then and then later three volume account of walking from as he phrased it the hook of Holland to Constantinople, uh, and this this is a remarkable journey which he carried out in the interwar period. But the books were published much later. But the right? books were published much later. That's right. They they were in fact published closer to this eighties publishing boom than than in the thirties when he he did the walk. And I remember being impressed, and I remember being interested, but, but nothing more than that. At no point when reading these books did I think, well, that, that's, that's the direction I want to go in. And then I, I read English at university, I had ambitions to be a writer, and they were almost exclusively in, in fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, I maybe wrote a bit of po- poetry when I was 18. Just for the then, money. <laughs> Uh, but then I decided against selling out and committed to, <laughs> to fiction. So that was that was really uh, the limits of my ambitions for my for my early twenties. And I and I think I probably didn't really think of travel as a as a as a genre which you could you know, create lasting works of art in. And then what happened was that in my early twenties I went through a period of mental illness. And one of the things, one of the results of this period was that I, it became clear to me that I was not psychologically robust enough to spend long periods of time by myself and in my own head, and that, that deep dives into the imagination were not something I really had the kind of emotional reserves to be able to do. At the time, I was working as a journalist, and I, I was writing a little of occasional articles, but I, I wasn't... I wasn't pitching regularly, and I wasn't I wasn't sort of building up a, a collection of, of I wasn't I wasn't building up much experience either. Again, because I didn't really have the intellectual curiosity or the sort of confidence to to do that. And so I 
I imagined at that point that writing, which had been the ambition for, for most of my teens, was, was potentially something that I wasn't going to do. And at the time, this felt like a, a relief, to be honest. And what then happened was, after I was coming out of this period of mental illness, and in fact, had, had come off antidepressants, had stopped speaking to a, to a therapist, in order to, to test myself or to challenge myself, or to celebrate in some way this change, I decided to walk from London, from my flat where I was living at the time, to Canterbury. This is a walk of about 70 miles. I decided to do it on the longest longest day of the year, on the weekend. And um, I, I had a terrible experience. So I got lost, I got rained on, I got very bad This came blisters. up in the extract you read when we were here. That's right, yeah. this, is, this is forms the beginning of the book. And um, it, it took me took me two. I gave myself two days to, to do it, but it, I was walking much too fast. And when I got to to Canterbury to Canterbury Cathedral, which was the end of the walk, I, despite having had this very miserable experience to get there, I felt a sense of relief so complete it was like healing. Mm-hmm. And outside Canterbury Cathedral, there is a small plaque which reads Via Francigena, Canterbury to Rome. And at the time, I knew nothing at all about medieval pilgrimage routes. But I thought to myself, well, well, why don't I keep going? And so I, I went back home, I did a little research, I realised that the Via Francigena was the medieval route to Rome, that it then connected up with, with other pilgrimage routes that could carry you all the way across the continent and end up taking you to Jerusalem. And so to come back to your question... The journey came out of these sort of unusual and fraught personal circumstances and at a point at which I'd, I'd almost abandoned my, my literary ambitions. And in a way I'm, I'm glad for this because I think that if I had thought that I was writing, carrying, beginning the journey in order to write a book, I don't think I'd have got very far. You know, I'd have it got rained on, I'd have taken taxis, taken buses because it just wouldn't have seemed worth it. But because I thought I was doing it essentially to to heal myself in some way, that was what made the journey possible. And it was out of the journey that the book came. And were you or are you a religious person? Um, no, no, I'm not. So at the time, I was, I was a pretty convinced non-believer when I mm. set out on this journey. And I was... I was curious about the lives of believers. I, I intended to stay in, in monasteries and convents and in churches along the way. But I imagined that my interest was a sort of purely academic and quite a distanced one. And in a way, this is a hard thing to explain because I was also carrying out this pilgrimage in, in the hope that some sort of healing would follow, which is a, is a sort of sacramental notion. Mm. But not necessarily a religious one. Not for, I mean, necessarily like for most, a religious but I did the Camino one. last year, as we discussed, and yeah, not everyone there was religious, but yeah, everyone was lost. You know? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and so what I think I, I understood by the end of it, which I didn't understand by the beginning, is that religious ritual can still have value, even if you're a non-believer, that you can still get something out of it, even if you don't buy into the metaphysics. And that was clear to me by the end, but, but it wasn't at the beginning. And so similarly, now I will go to Evensong, or I'll read religious texts, and I still find them, them valuable, I still get something out of them, 
but but in terms of the cosmic questions that I haven't really shifted. And with your, I mean, you say as much or as little as you're comfortable with, but with this experience of being unwell in your 20s, had you had uh, experiences of mental illness before that or did it come out of nowhere or did it kind of, what, um, what do you feel were the sort of triggers and the things that had? I think, I think it's often the case with people who have mental illness when they're young is that they don't necessarily realise that something is wrong with them. Mm. So I think in my, my own situation, I had become unwell at university. I'm not sure that there's a, a specific trauma or triggering incident that I could point to. But then, while at university, I sort of self-medicated by drinking heavily, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, the problem with doing that at university is everyone else is doing it as well. So yeah. it's not clear that you're doing it for unhealthy reasons. Yeah. But then I left university and, and drank more, whereas most people drink less. Uh, and this carried on, you know, really in, until I went to a doctor and, and said that I think there was something wrong with me. Um, and so... Did you think you were depressed? Uh, at that point I was suicidal. Um, and so I... I thought that I was a danger to myself. Right. But I this sounds this sounds a strange thing to say, but but just eight years ago, I think we were a less mentally literate society. Yeah. I think we were less good at talking about these issues and they were less current as it were. So I don't think I'd formulated a, a diagnosis at that stage. Yeah. And I, your experience of being very unwell was one of of rumination or of just I and mean, how did how did Again, if, only if you're comfortable talking this stuff. But how, how, you know, I'm always fascinated because we talk, we use these labels of anxiety or depression for experiences that are so personal and so distinct. Yes. So, you know how? What was your personal, you know, experience with it? And you know, how? What was it like? Um. Well, when I was drinking heavily, it was the behaviour that's typical to an alcoholic. So, long periods of time lost to drink. And, and these binges mostly carried out by myself. Um, when the when I was not drinking heavily but but still depressed, uh, the experience was primarily one of a sense of defeat. So it wasn't really sadness. In a way, it wasn't a, an emotional mood, which which I think of my emotions as being sort of. Uh, fairly responsive to the world around me. Instead, it was a sense of defeat, which which was almost physical in its tangibility, uh, was was in no way sort of rational or, or reactive to what was happening around me, and yet was strong enough to to overwhelm. So it 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 made it sort of hard to get out of bed in the morning and things mm. like that. And one thing that it, it made very hard was it it sort of shut down intellectual curiosity empathy and things like that so the kind of resources that you use as a reader as a writer as a friend as a human being those seemed to me to be smothered in some way and then the experience of the walk itself you know um before it became a literary artifact before it became something you wrote about what i mean at the extremes what were the best and what were the worst elements of that you walked to rome and then you walked to jerusalem right yes that's right the experience of the walk itself... And how long were you walking? I, I was walking for 10 months. Okay. Uh, Rome, Istanbul and Jerusalem. To begin with, I felt uh, 
an enormous sort of high. And that was the, the kind of giddiness that comes when you, you set yourself a, a difficult task, one you think it's, there's a, a risk you're not going to complete or even embark on. And then you surprise yourself by, by actually doing it. And so to begin with, you've got this sort of high that comes from just the very fact of doing this unlikely thing. Mm. And that was also intensified by the fact that I, I began walking in winter. This meant that I had to find a place to stay each night. But I, you know, I didn't have the money to stay in hotels and I was walking in remote routes. But I very quickly found that if I turned up at, in a village or a town and if I found the church, the priest or someone attached to the church, I could explain what I was doing and I could ask for somewhere to stay. And people on the whole took me in and looked after me. And so this was quite a exciting experience. You were on an established pilgrimage route. Yes. So the the Via Francigena is is the the sort of European cultural bodies are trying to make it a popular route in the way that the Camino is. Mm. The Camino has sort of hundreds of thousands of people. For the uninitiated, you explain the the, uh, Camino. the Camino de Santiago, which is a walk to Santiago de Compostela. The the most well known route is through northern Spain, but it it has it has routes that crisscross the entire continent so people moving from you know germany from italy from scandinavia uh, and if you're walking that that stretch in northern spain then there are typically refugios places you can stay for very little money every 15 kilometers mm. and there are other people doing it so the, the route that you're meant to take is clear it's it's a well trodden path by contrast the uh the the route to rome that i walked that has about 200 people a year doing it. Uh, the majority do that in early summer or, or early autumn, late spring, early autumn. And uh, I was doing it in winter, so so there was there was no one else doing it, obviously. And uh, apart from when I, the latter stretches in Italy, I had some company. And there are places that you can stay, but they're they're often quite far apart. Hmm. And equally, you're, you're walking through areas where the, the route may not be clear, especially in winter if there's snow on the ground. But but because I had people taking me in regularly, and because there was only one of me, I was I was you know I was a bit more mobile. Uh, to begin with, it was it was a very sort of invigorating experience, and this remained the case really until after Rome. And then when I was walking the central section through the Balkans, that's the the Via Ignatia, trying to follow the old Roman road to to Istanbul as it is now, I began shutting down a little bit. I I had been, I, I spoke enough French and enough Italian to communicate with people, but once I was in the Balkans, I was I was able to communicate, to talk to fewer people. I, I didn't really understand orthodoxy so well. I was finding it harder to find places to stay. And so the the symptoms that I thought I was leaving behind, that I was escaping, those in fact began to return. The depressive symptoms. Yes, exactly. Or, or I would say probably the warning signs of right. those symptoms, of, of that condition. And so by the time I got to Istanbul, I, I worried that I was going to have to, to end my journey and to fly home. And then? Well, well what happened when I got to Istanbul was two things changed my my perspective the first was that i was in istanbul during the taxim square protests this was the summer of 2013 mm. and i was staying with a friend or a friend of a friend quite near to the where the demonstrations were happening 
And so witnessing this, what felt like a historic event going on nearby, sort of took me out of myself and returned my focus to what was happening around me. And the other thing that that changed my perspective was prior to Istanbul, I had spent a few days in uh, Mount Athos, which is a, a sort of collection of about 20 monastic communities that form their own independent kingdom in, in northern Greece. And you, you have to, to, to go... Is it you actually have to sovereign? Take... Is it actually a... Yes, yes, it is. So they, they have a small sort of... Um, it's a theocracy, essentially. Okay. And um, you have to you have to to go there. You have to get a pass, and you take a boat to go onto the the peninsula, and then you, when you're once you're there, you stay in the monasteries each night. And typically, it, it's meant for Orthodox pilgrims, but they have a few passes which are allowed for non-Orthodox pilgrims as well. And while I was there, up to this point, I had found the Orthodox services sort of dull and confusing and, and very very long. Mm. And when you're there, you stay in the monasteries and each morning you go to the three-hour services that last from about 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. And Three hours, wow. Yes, and, and you're standing up for most of the time. And, and there something began to shift in my mind, which was something to do with, up until that point, I had been focused on Jerusalem as my destination and I'd been using that as my motivation to the point where I was telling myself, if I can just sort of endure the next few hours or days, Jerusalem's not far away. And this is not a practical way to motivate yourself Mm. over 10 months of walking. And while I was on Mount Athos, something shifted so that it became much easier to take each day as it comes and just pay attention to what was around me. And even though this sounds sort of quite simplistic, it it can take time for that shift, shift to happen in the mind. But once that does happen, it means traveling long distances becomes much easier to do because you're not fixating on the destination. And what I then found when I finished the journey was that this is this is a very valuable lesson when you're trying to write a book as well. Whereas if you, you know, try and hold your breath and just sort of you're tough not, it out happen, until yeah. you get to the last page, you're going to exhaust yourself. I mean, I found I, you know, I did the Camino last year, so a, a much more modest walk, but a, a, you know, a reasonable walk in itself. And one thing I found was interesting with it was that one's perception of time shifted a bit. So I found that by the end, you would walk 25 kilometers a day, but it would seem just kind of like going for a stroll around the block, that it wouldn't seem, partly it was maybe, I don't know, that I found, that was one thing that I found was fascinating about it. It just, it didn't seem that the walk was a less far, it just the amount of time you were spending walking each day seemed less, although it was obviously the same. Did you have any experience like that? The way that I think of walking when you're on a pilgrimage is that it's it's like it's your job. Yeah. And so you're spending typically six to eight hours a day doing your job. Yeah. If you talk to someone who works in an office and they said and you say to them, Well, how was it spending eight hours sitting at a desk staring at a computer? Yeah. Kind of like you've suggested, that's not how it feels. No. It doesn't feel like the amount of time you spent doing something is is how much space it's taking up in your experience. And that is also tied to the way that geography changes. So the way that we think of geography is typically in the time it takes to take a bus, take a train, drive, or fly somewhere. And those are the way that we parcel up distance. And what happens when you're walking is that 
the distance becomes three miles an hour essentially mm. and so the distance between two villages or two towns is a morning or an afternoon even though you know if you, if you drove them it could be done in 12 minutes or something yeah and to begin with this can be a slightly frustrating experience because you know that you've been walking for several weeks and you've covered a distance on a map that is is tiny but at the same time but with time it expands the world the world in ways that for me seemed seemed quite empowering so the fact that you can fly to Jerusalem in about four hours. On the one hand, it would make spending 10 months walking there seem like a futile experience. But but that shrinking of the distance between us and Jerusalem, the shrinking to the distance of a flight, mm. it seems to me actually a shrinking of our own minds and our the horizons of the world around us. And so if you can stretch those out, if you can expand them, and if you can remind yourself of how much variety and diversity there is between you and whatever distant location you're heading to, that, I think, something inside you also gets bigger as well. If you're enjoying Always Take Notes, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. Even a small monthly donation, the price of a cup of coffee, will help us pay our producer and social media editor. It will also cover our hosting fees and go towards upgrading our equipment. If you donate $10, you will receive a bundle of successful story pitches to a range of publications, including The Guardian Long Read, National Geographic, The Times and GQ. Different in style, length and tone, the document will show an aspiring writer what has worked in the real world. You can find our page at www.patreon.com slash alwaystakenotes. And what happened to you physically, to your body? You know, you said in this trial walk to Canterbury, you had terrible blisters, things like that. Did you... You have the mental process on one hand, but what was going on physically over this time and were they interconnected? So the difference between walking for one day and seven days is very big. Yeah. The distance difference between walking for seven days and four weeks is smaller. Yeah. And the difference between walking for one month and should we say 10 months? It's smaller. smaller I'm sure that's true. Yeah, I found that I was glad on the Camino to have done it in a one because, yeah, the first week was basically about pain and you had to kind of get through that. Um, but the, by the end, yeah, you were sort of, you, it was a going concern. You could carry on. And, and you imagine you could carry on almost indefinitely yeah. provided you didn't get ill or you, and you had a constant intake of food. Yeah. And so that was sort of what I found. To begin with, the experience was primarily about the physical challenge. Yeah. That was my feet becoming harder, getting used to carrying a rucksack with with everything I owned, obviously. And then the challenge of the terrain, which was, to begin with, the the weather, and then was also climbing over the Alps in the winter. Which route did you go? Uh, I went over the Great St. Bernard Pass. And you went over the pass itself? Yes. Was it very snowy? Uh, There was 10 metres of snow, (laughs) walking on top of them. Um, But there is a, a, there's a refuge at the at the top of the pass, which is yeah. which is the medieval refuge, which has been open for a thousand years, uh, and so and I I just kept telling myself, well, now there's the the tunnel underneath, which is what the traffic all takes. But for for hundreds and hundreds of years, pilgrims have been or, or just you know, locals have been walking over this pass at all times of the year. Yeah. So it must be possible to do. But once I once I was beyond the Alps, the the physical challenges were really reduced completely. 
uh, once the weather got hot again, there was the struggle of walking in warm in the warmth. But but the longer you go, the larger the mental challenge becomes, mm. and that and even if you're not dealing with any sort of mental illness, you still have this struggle, and I'm sure this is a struggle that anyone who sets themselves some some large or physically demanding journey faces, which is the why am I doing this question. And that question becomes louder the longer that you're walking. And in my own case, the fact that I was a non-believer doing this walk to begin with seemed almost irrelevant. But as time went on, I began to ask myself, if I don't believe this is having any spiritual value and it's clearly not having any mental benefit, why am I still doing this? How did it become a book then? The mechanics of it? So when I got to the end of my journey, I, I'd been taking notes the whole way through. As I said, I'd been working as a journalist. As longhand? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've always kept a diary, so keeping notes seemed a, a natural thing to do. I mentioned I'd been in Istanbul for these protests. I'd also been in Rome with the first Easter of the of the new Pope, Pope Francis had just been elected. And so it seemed that by chance, oh, and I, when, I was in, uh, when I was in Lebanon, this, um, they had the, the worst bombing since the Civil War in, in Tripoli while I, while I was in the centre of that city. So by chance I'd encountered a number of, of quite important events which I'd been a witness to. Mm. And I felt some sort of obligation to record these events. They, they seemed worth writing about. But then also, I my perspective on contemporary religion had changed, which I essentially thought was a spent force. Right. And then I discovered there was this sort of shadow network of religious communities who'd been looking after me and who'd made it possible to cross an entire continent through their generosity. And that insight I couldn't have gained if I hadn't done the journey. And for me, the fundamental question that any work of travel needs to answer is, what did you learn from doing this journey that you could not have learned from sitting in a library mm-hmm. or calling up a few people? So those all things seemed things that were worth writing about. Yeah. And so when I, when I got to the end of the walk, I thought, great, I'll write a book. And then two things shifted in, in the sort of the first 12 months after the end of the journey. The first thing was that I imagined the writing of the book would be something that was done essentially part-time, that it, would be, that it wouldn't be very difficult to do because I had these remarkable experiences. And it, Not true? It was not true. <laughs> you asked at the beginning about how I, how I sort of felt about travel as a genre, and I said when I was growing up I didn't really read it. Quite early on in this process I read Bruce Chatwin's In Patagonia, and it quickly well, became... before you'd done the walk? Or? After I'd done the walk. Okay. And it became clear to me that all of my aesthetic ambitions, which up to that point had been exclusive to fiction, mm. that, that they could all be achieved within a work of non-fiction. Work so you saw that from Chatwin, but not from Lee Fermor? Or were you too young when you read Lee I think Fermor? I think I was too young when I read Lee Fermor. Yeah. And I, I find, at the time, I found Chatwin's style a bit more sympathetic. But that also set the bar quite high and it quickly became clear that I wasn't going to be able to, just writing a little bit in my spare time, achieve anything like that level. And then the other thing that changed was a a personal thing. So a a family member had quite a serious accident. They were no longer mobile. No one else in the family was, everyone else in the family was occupied and I wasn't. So the most convenient thing to do was to to move in with them and, and, and help them out. But that still wasn't taking up much of the day. 
in a kind of carer and, role. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that wasn't taking up much of the time. So then I thought, well, the thing to do is to, to carry on doing this. I write with all the rest of the time, really, in, in, until it's as good as it as it needs to be. And that ended up being four years. And how did you get a deal and stuff like that? So this is a, this is a slightly indirect process, but I'm, I'm going to tell the whole story because I, I think it's actually quite a useful story. Mm-hmm. When I was in Istanbul during the walk, I was taken out for supper with someone, with a journalist, and uh, by a journalist. And he was in touch with an agent who represented a number of people I, writers I quite admired. And he gave me this agent's email address. So I thought, well, that was easy. I mm-hmm. sent them an email, said what I was doing, and they showed some interest. So it seemed as if it had been an effortless process. Yeah. After the end of the walk, I got in touch with them again. And we... I, I, I showed them some writing, we had a meeting, I had some feedback, and I showed them some more writing, which seems like a positive experience. But this was actually stretched out over two years. And in yeah. between, there were these long periods of sort of six months when I heard nothing at all. But because I didn't really know how it worked, I thought, well, maybe this is just what you've got to expect. I think this is such a common experience that so, you go in, you don't know how it works, like they throw stardust at you you know, you think this is amazing and exciting and you get strung along for a really long period of time. Yes. Since yeah. since this has happened, I've spoken to a number of people who've had a similar experience. Yeah. And from what I can tell is, you've shared some writing which is promising. You know, you've got a good idea, but at this stage, you you're, you still take quite a lot of work and you maybe don't have the track record to reassure the agent. But they don't want to say a definite no to you. And what they're hoping is they're going to have lunch with someone in six months with an editor who says you don't have any books about long walks, do you? And then they can get in touch with you yeah, and, yeah. and carry it out. But, but, but the relationship happen, is totally uneven because you think like, they're my agent and like, we're working together on this. But you're just like a, you know, a line. I mean, I think if you understand, you know, the difference that you can get it. But I think particularly if you're in your, you know, early 20s and things, it's very easy to really get screwed in these situations. Yeah. And if they're not replying to your emails, basically. They're not your agent. In 24 hours, they're probably not your agent. Yeah. Um, and so this, as I said, this took a, this took about two years. And so, what did you do at the end of that two years? I was I was quite demoralised. But over that two years, I'd been working on, let's say, the first forty to fifty thousand words of the book, and predominantly the first twenty five thousand. At the end of that two year period, so we're now at the end of two thousand and fifteen. I was just online, and I saw the announcement of a competition that had been set up. The competition was called the the Deborah Rogers Foundation Award. Deborah Rogers was uh, an agent, an agent who was of the generation whose famous members are Kazuo Ishiguro, Ian McEwan, Simon Rushdie, Bruce Chatwin. She was the sort of super agent, and she indeed was, represented all of those writers. She died a few years ago, and the agency she set up set up a prize in her memory for unpublished authors. You send in twenty to thirty thousand words and an outline, and the winner got a load of money to finish their book. So this was the first year. And of, representation. Uh, the possibility of representation, not the guarantee. Okay. This was the first year they'd set it up. I, I had no idea what would happen, but I, I sent in what I had. Yeah. And I think they had sort of over eight hundred entries, so it's very very popular. And I ended up getting down to the shortlist, which was three people. I didn't win the prize, but from being on the shortlist, several agents were interested, and then after that, several publishers were interested, and yeah. you know, within about six weeks to two months, I had a deal. Sure. 
So, so in the end, that was a very positive process. And, and the reason that happened was because I, I'd spent two years working on, on my prose. And at that point, it was good enough to share with people in the way that it probably wasn't six months or a year in. Yeah. Um, that competition, I, I think, is, is, it's, it runs every two years. All of the shortlisted authors have now published books. The second iteration, I think all of the shortlisted authors have now got deals as well. How long is the shortlist? Uh, three people. Okay. Uh, and then they have a long list of, I think, eight. And I think various people from the long list have also published books as well. So it, it's, a, it's a really good prize if you're an unpublished author. And what did you do with your previous agent? Uh, well, we, we didn't have any official relationship and it, it, it sort of petered out You just out me- mutually point. ghosted each other? I think, well, I think I was the one being ghosted. Um, <laughs> but you, did you ever, like, pull the trigger and, like, fire them well I, I wasn't sure we had like an official enough relationship to, <laughs> for, for, me for to, you to cancel it yeah so it literally just like <laughs> if you if you've been going out with someone and then they've ghosted you for six months if you send them a message say well, I'm breaking up with you <laughs> you regain um, the initiative uh, do you not potentially okay, interesting. so it literally it I literally, didn't have a wingman giving me that advice <laughs> it literally just petered out yeah okay have you ever had any contact with that agent ever again no would you like sending them now on the podcast? No. <laughs> okay. Um, as the, you know, the moral of the story is I'm very happy with how it ended up. Right, but when you're in the middle of it, you know how would you'd, you'd been you'd been through the mill psychologically before the walk, periods on the walk. You just spent two years, you know, being ghosted by your agent and sort of fucked around and stuff. How was your, you know, morale at that time? It's difficult when you are in the early stages of of a creative career and you presumably are reading at quite a high level and you've set quite a high standard but the work you're producing is nowhere near that level and all you really have to do is to keep producing work until it gets to that level that's a hard thing to do and it's also hard when you know you meet strangers and they ask what you do and you want to be able to define yourself in some way but Mm. you're essentially just an aspiring writer so those are difficult, and I think my solution to that was essentially to just self-isolate. I just you know, spent a lot of time. Which you had previously determined was not good for you. Well, in the past that had been the case, but what I had now shown to myself was, first of all, that I had a bit more courage or determination or stamina than I had thought, because I had been able to finish this walk. And second of all, that I was able to spend long periods of time by myself Mm. without falling apart. And so having proved these things to myself, I felt far more confident about being able to to do them for the period of time that was required to write a book. Did you have, you mentioned that you'd you'd taken antidepressants, you'd also stopped taking them. Did you have an experience of of the impact they had on your writing, on, on creativity and so forth? No, that's obviously a hugely vexed debate. I, I wasn't it. writing at all at that time. Yeah. Maybe I was very infrequently writing for the, the newspaper I worked for. But the I noticed that my reading was... I was reading almost exclusively non-fiction because I found it very hard to engage with fictional characters. Yeah. And... It seems to me that the the way you're reading is often a parallel from the way to the way that you're writing or the way that you would be writing. So that's the extent of my experience there. Were I in the same situation again, I'd be very reluctant to go on them because it seems to me that they, in my own experience, 
what they're shutting down is is something quite important for a writer yeah. to be able to. How access. long were you taking them for? Uh, Eighteen months. Yeah, yeah. And then we always—it's a rule of the podcast—we always talk about money. So this period, you know, the, the long gestation of this book and so forth. How how we, did that work financially? So before the walk, I had several months before I came up with the idea of the walk, I had imagined that I was going to apply to law school. At this point, I'd sort of abandoned my writing ambitions. Mm. So I'd been saving up money to to go to law school. And then I realised that I didn't want to do that at all. So I I had an amount of money uh, saved up. And this was some of this money I used during the walk, but but in the end, I didn't spend very much on the walk. And then this was essentially my pocket money while I was while I was writing the book and because I was living with this family member I, I wasn't paying rent uh, and so that was what what funded me through the writing of the book uh, up up until I sold it are you able again says much or little but like how many publishers were interested how much money was on the table that kind of you know um, I, I very un-English questions to <laughs> ask uh, I don't really want to talk about that just because um, I don't think it's, that's fine um, but the amount of money that the publisher that I went for... Are we talking for, like a nice supper or a sports car? The amount of money that the publisher I went for offered was enough for me to write for three years without needing to get an additional source of income, provided I was living on something like minimum wage. Okay. Uh, and given that I'm I'm fairly frugal... I th- I thought that was a realistic option. Sure. So so that that's how I, I currently sort of that's how I currently live. Yeah. And um, the, I I don't think it's a long term model. If if for example someone was coming to me advice, I would say don't. This is not a practical long term model. But part of me just wanted to try it. Yeah. I, I've got no kids. I've got no mortgage. I wanted to see if I could write a book in you know, the, the the three years that I that I'd bought myself. And the other thing is that a lot of people don't feel comfortable putting all of their eggs in one basket. Whereas perversely, I actually, I actually feel more secure if I'm just, just working on exclusively one thing. Interesting. Cause yeah, my, my feeling is, is I think because forward the opposite of like, you know, you need to be hedged. You need like stuff will go wrong. Stuff yeah. will break. You know, you, you know that if you are, if all your eggs are in one basket, then, Quite literally, all your eggs are in one basket. Where, how did you achieve a sense of security from this? Well, I think that's actually a temperamental thing. Yeah. So I, I, I because just, you've got more skin in the game to see it through. Do you think? Or I, I find that working on one thing exclusively makes possible. Uh, a certain intensity of the way that you work that is harder if you're doing several things at once. Mm-hmm. However, and in fact, this was this was one of the real insights of, of the week we we spent together on this retreat. We should say that Guy was also a a, um, a member of the yeah the writers retreat that I co-organised in Italy last last September. And on that retreat, there were there were academics, there were a number of long form journalists, and what it was very clear from spending time with them was how nourished, how fed they were by the different projects that they were doing. Mm. Um, my interest always funnel when I'm working my project because I'm essentially working one thing. The people around me seem to have kept a very broad selection of interests and that was 
keeping them is literally active. So I suspect that in the future, and certainly if I want to write a longer book, which is going to take many more years, mm. then then that is how I would try and you know I, I try and have a side hustle. Can we talk about Flaubert's, Flaubert's workshop? Yes, of course. <laughs> this came up again in Italy. So, so I mean, you can tell us better than I can, Guy, but explain, explain about Flaubert's creative writing course. Francis Stiegmuller was an American author who translated Flaubert, and he wrote what I think is the best biography of an author that I've read, which is an account of the writing of Madame Bovary. So it's Flaubert up to the age of 35. Flaubert, when he was a young man, was very influenced by romantic and sort of oriental or orientalist writing. And his first sort of serious creative effort was A Life of St. Anthony. And he we, spent, We've all been there. <laughs> uh, and he spent a long time polishing, polishing, polishing this, this very extravagant um, sort of play account of the, this hermit saint's life. Which, which it was, was a play? It's, sub- it's it's published. In, it's sort of written in dialogue. Okay. It, it is. It was subsequently published. It's it's a pretty grueling read, so I don't recommend it. <laughs> How does it um, compare with Curzon's travel literature? <laughs> it, it is at least shorter, um, and it was uh, in his sort of early early to mid twenties. This was the thing he was working on. He then brought together his two best friends, and he he brought them together, it. or they brought him together. Who st- who staged the intervention? They invited he invited them round to read it to them. He then read it to them, you know, without interruption. So that must have been a sort of eight hour binge. <laughs> they and where then, is this taking place? Shea Flaubert. I think probably Shea Flaubert. Uh, he may have provided some sort of Snacks. nibbles or sweetmeats. <laughs> they then looked a bit embarrassed and said, "Gustav, I think the best thing to do is to put this in a drawer and just forget about it for a while." <laughs> So Flaubert was pretty down and he thought, fine, I'm going to go to the Orient, which I've been reading about so much. And he then spent the next two years traveling around Egypt, bits of the Levant, um, visiting brothels, seeing kind of all the sort of exotic fancies that appealed to him. He then came home to provincial France and his two friends sat him down again and they said, "Uh, Gustave, did you hear that this guy that we were at school with his wife was having an affair with someone and has just killed herself with some poison. This is a great story. You should definitely write about it. <laughs> and he was like, no, I love the Orient. I love the East. I love the ancient world. I, I hate the bourgeois. I hate provincials. There's no way I'll write about that. And they said, no, 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 Flaubert. You are a bourgeois. You are a provincial. <laughs> write what you know. This is your story. So he eventually he, he agreed to do it. And so the first thing that was remarkable about that is is the fact that the idea of writing Madame Bovary was not Flaubert's idea. The second thing that I found remarkable about that was he then spent the next five years living in his mother's house, writing this book, and every single Sunday, I think either one or both of his friends would come over for lunch and they would read over what he was doing and they would talk about the prose and how well it was going or how badly it was going. So Flaubert, who is, you know, the arch idea of the writer on his own doing it exactly. all himself. Exactly, he is yeah. the exemplar of the isolated writer. Of the guy's writer, tag approach. <laughs> was in fact workshopping his prose every single weekend. And what is the moral of that story, Guy? However, he didn't have a side hustle. <laughs> potentially because he was living with his mother and had a private income. But he did devote himself to one, to one thing. 
Interesting. Uh, but yeah, the, the I would really recommend the biography um, and indeed Flaubert's letters and, and of course Madame Bovary. Yeah. We're close to time, but the final thing I wanted to end on is sort of circling back on that Chatwin point. It's the whole idea of veracity in travel writing. You know, big debates about that kind of Lee Fermor, Chatwin generation. We for just making stuff up. And when we had Rory Stewart on the show, he was, you know, very sceptical of this and, and sort of kicked against it. I mean, where do you sit on that whole vexed question of like truth, truthiness? With my own book... Did you actually do the walk? <laughs> with my own book, uh, I, I hope that it achieves these various sort of literary and aesthetic effects that I was aiming for. But I recognise the fact that a lot of people who may want to buy the book will want to buy the book because it's about an extraordinary walk mm. with some un- unlikely adventures along the way. And so I couldn't really conceive when I was writing my own book of making stuff up because it seemed if you've if you've been in a terrorist attack or you know, you've know you been in a, a massive protest and that's actually happened to you, mm. I didn't want people to doubt the veracity of that because I was telling small lies elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And so th- it seemed that I would lose too much. You know, I'd done this remarkable walk. It, it, I would lose too much by then, you know, making, making stuff up elsewhere. So, so that, was, that was why I was as truthful as I knew how to be. Having said that, I was basing it on on notes that I'd taken, on conversations I'd had in languages that I potentially didn't speak that well. Mm. Um, I I was relying on memory at times, or I was augmenting memory with research mm. that I'd done. And so it's it's only ever as accurate as you can make it. And it's yeah. not going to have the accuracy of, of a documentary or even, you know, j- journalism, that sort of high quality journalism. You weren't which recording is, conversations? Or, I wasn't recording conversations. Yeah. Um, and indeed, I, I didn't have my notebook out when I was talking to people. Yeah. So I was writing down... But you used dialogue in the text. Yes, yeah. so I was writing down what I remembered. So yeah. there were going to be inaccuracies there. As a reader... But you didn't, like, make up any countries? I, I didn't. I didn't, for example, I would, I would feel... I would feel comfortable shifting around. If I've had two conversations, I feel comfortable shoving them together. Really? I don't feel comfortable inventing words that someone's said Okay, interesting. But you would feel comfortable like amalgamating conversations? Yes, because the intention is not to deceive. It's just to make the reading experience. Right. If I was amalgamating the conversation to put forward some sort of argument or point okay. that I... You know that that wasn't in fact... Was this ever discussed with you? I mean, did you, was that, were you ever kind of given like the rules... This wasn't discussed. I think I, I think at some point I, I explained the principles that I'd followed. Yeah. There certainly weren't any rules. And I think it was presumed that it was true in a way that, you know, if, I, if I'd wanted to make more stuff up, I presumably could have got away with it. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's interesting to see where, kind of where, where the lines sit. With As it. a reader, I, I actually don't care at all. Okay. All, all I'm really interested in is the experience I'm having, right. uh, how moved I am, how engaged I am. So what's the next project then? So the project that I'm working on now is is fiction. Mm-hmm. During the writing of The Crossway, the parts that I found most rewarding were the parts that seemed to be closest to the to the novelistic project. You know, the, the creation of vivid characters or, or the attempt to sort of move the reader, things like that. And I wanted to push further in that direction. 
So the, the, the novel that I'm working on at the moment begins with some sort of biographical material, but, but this does contain sort of invention and fiction. And it, it's, it's an interesting challenge because when you are working on a work of nonfiction, you normally have a story that already exists, mm. a battle that's happened, a remarkable life that you're recording. Yeah. And you know that's interesting. So the challenge is just to convey the interest to the reader. You've just got to do justice to the interest that already exists. Sure. But with fiction, you're, whether or not it's interesting is essentially a rhetorical question. It's whether or not you can make it interesting sentence by sentence, yeah. line by line. And I think this is a, a different sort of challenge just in terms of motivating yourself super well that's a good good place any to uh, bring this to an end so look thanks for being such a great guest and wishing you all the best both with the crossway and with your other stuff going forward thanks very much hello it's us again as i'm sure you can tell both from the content and the audio quality this episode was recorded before the lockdown simon how did you find that interview well, it was a long, long time ago I recorded this. Actually, we recorded it, I think, at the end of last year and then for various scheduling reasons, um, hasn't run, but really great to have it. It does seem a bit like another world. I mean, I remember sitting in Guy's flat in East London um, doing it in person, which is something we haven't done, haven't done for a while. Um, I met Guy on this residency uh, that I, I organised last year and he's a really interesting and kind of cerebral guy. So I found it very interesting. Um, and yeah, you know, travel is not really something we're doing a lot of at the moment. So good to look back to a time we could do that and hopefully look forward to a time we'll be able to do it again. Mm, a transporting read for, for listeners as well, if they get their hands on the crossway. Something like that, anyway. Yeah. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Owen Redahan. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes, and if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.